Welcome to Rational in Portland, where we say everything you can't say in Portland. I'm your host, Karen. Let's start with the very best news and some of the ways in which we are being rational in Portland. Masks are coming off a lot of kids in Oregon, even Portland public schools. I haven't heard yet of a school district in Oregon that wants to keep masks on kids. If you know of any, please let us know. We are on Twitter at Rational in PDX. So you can contact us on Twitter at Rational in PDX, and you can direct message us there. Also, be sure to follow, like, and subscribe our podcast wherever you find our podcasts. And if you like the show, tell a friend. The burning question that I'm getting from a lot of people is why did Portland Association of Teachers, the Portland Teachers Union, agree to lift the mask? What are we missing here? So I took a look at the collective bargaining agreement, again, between Portland Public Schools and the Portland Association of Teachers, so between the district and the Teachers Association, and all I can come up with is political pressure. All I can come up with is the lack of goodwill and lack of political capital that the teachers union suddenly finds itself with, probably for the first time ever, certainly in my recent memory. I don't remember teachers, certainly teachers unions, being as unpopular as they are now because they're stated, my understanding is the the union's stated explanation for why they're allowing masks to be optional at Portland Public is because their bargaining agreement says that they comply with the Ready School Safe Learners OHA guidance, which is now saying that districts can decide. Um, But they certainly, I mean, I'm not a labor lawyer, but I look through this collective bargaining agreement, and if I were their lawyer, I would certainly have pointed out to them that based on a number of provisions, including one that says students and staff are required to wear face coverings unless they have documented exception to the rule, period, with no caveats to that, I would have maybe used that and said, you can certainly continue to argue that the Ready School Safe Learners OHA guidance is a floor, not a ceiling for what we can do here. And the OHA guidance actually said the districts get to decide. So I think they could have taken this all the way and they decided not to. And it's also possible that a lot of them wanted to take their masks off, that a lot of them are able to read and understand that only a fit-tested N95 is going to protect them And that even most doctors, if they talk to doctors that treat COVID patients, they will tell them, I wear a fit-tested N95. I've been trained to put one on, unlike teachers, um, because I'm a medical professional. And they will say, "I, I keep it on for as little time as possible because it is so uncomfortable. And we've all seen the pictures from Wuhan when the pandemic started all the way over to here of these poor healthcare professionals in their fit-tested N95s, and their faces are a mess because they're wearing them correctly and because they've been trained in how to wear them, and they know how to wear them. Teachers have not been trained in how to wear N95s. And nowhere in this bargaining agreement does it say that they get that training. If I were a teacher and I was terrified and I really believed that a mask was the only thing standing between me and death, I would have bargained for a medical professional to come in and train me on N95 fit testing and how to properly wear one, but it's nowhere in there. So maybe it's possible that these teachers even see this mask thing as a um, some kind of meaningless charm 
meant to um, pretend like we're doing something about COVID when really we're just giving the middle finger to Trump, which is kind of how I see the whole mask thing. But either way, you know what? I'm going to take my crumbs and I'm going to savor them. Another amazing piece of news, the podcast is doing something. We're having a major impact in Portland. Through a super fan listener, we've been able to publicize exactly what this safe rest shelter ordinance says, that the high impact homeless, the worst of the worst, are coming to one of your neighborhoods where the city, led by Dan Ryan, is putting these no barrier shelters, these safe rest shelters. No barrier means no rules at all to get in or stay in them. Do your drugs, do everything you'd normally do out on the street, but do it in one of these things we call safe rest shelters in neighborhoods throughout the city so we can get businesses back downtown spending money again. If you want more information about this ordinance that was passed by the city very, very quietly and happens to still be on the books, take a look at season one, episode seven of this podcast called Portland where you can pitch a tent 10 feet away from the door of a home or a business. And I analyze that ordinance in depth. I also expose the Willamette Week article in which uh, Sam Adams was tasked by Mayor Wheeler to engage with the managing partners of the law firms downtown for help with a plan to relocate the worst of the worst homeless to the neighborhoods. And in fact, if you read that article pretty carefully, it is from May uh, 19th, 2021. It is called Portland's mayor asked downtown law firms for help with a plan to relocate people sleeping in front of their offices. If you take a look at that article, Sam Adams tells the managing partners, we're going to need your help with this because neighborhoods don't want these people living next to them. I wonder why. So the ordinance itself, you can look it up and you can go ahead and read it. I linked to it in the show notes of episode seven from season one, but it's ordinance 190478. And it specifically says that high impact homeless from downtown, that is their words in the ordinance, not my words, high impact will be moved to safe rest shelters. And as many of you know, these safe rest shelters are being put in Portland neighborhoods for some reason. I still can't wrap my mind around why and why they wouldn't put them downtown where the services are, but that's, and, and just Put them away from neighborhoods. Put them away from where people live and work and get their wraparound services. But if there's no barrier and there are no rules for staying there, why would you want to put them in neighborhoods where people are living and trying to work? None of this makes any sense. So what is a high-impact homeless person? A high-impact homeless person includes but is not limited to, I am reading from the ordinance right now, evidence of conspicuous drug use, paraphernalia, or improperly disposed of syringes. Impact on neighborhood livability as measured by the amount of uncontained debris. These are the people they're moving into your neighborhoods. Proximity to school, park with playground or private residence, environmental impact on natural areas and or the presence of hazardous materials. And here's a humdinger, verified reports of violence or criminal activity other than camping. Do you think they're going to scan for sex offenders? They won't. So we broke all this down in episode seven, season one, and a super fan listened to it, was duly horrified and notified Helping Hands, which is the nonprofit organization that was um, 
in going to be in charge of running the safe rest village at the Sears Armory in Southwest Portland. Amazingly, Helping Hands read the ordinance also, became aware of what they were actually being charged with doing, and they pulled out of the safe rest shelter. And let's read about this. This is from the Portland Tribune, Sunday, March 6th. 2022 helping hands pulls out of camp plan the organization expected to run the proposed safe rest village at the sears armory in southwest portland is pulling out over safety concerns helping hands founder alan evans said the reason is because the ordinance does not allow his organization to screen people well enough before they are moved to it criteria for who will be moved into safe rest villages is such a part of the plan that it's spelled out in the title of the ordinance that created the safe rest villages it reads safe rest villages as alternatives to high impact encampments so what's amazing about this you guys is the the tribune is now also publicizing what was in this ordinance that was quietly passed by the city they are publicizing the language Thanks to this super fan. So the Tribune is now publicizing what the ordinance says, which is amazing because now everybody can read it for themselves and take a look at this language and verify that the, what we talked about in episode seven, season one is true. The criteria is spelled out in the title. It says safe rest villages as alternative to high impact encampments. Among the criteria to define a high impact homeless camp is evidence of conspicuous drug use, the size of the camp, verified reports of violence or criminal activity. And that often means people in serious addiction. It's really difficult without pop proper conditions and rules in place that we could look at a neighborhood and say, we believe we can keep you safe, Evans told Coin6 News. Evans said, helping hands cannot be part of the Safe Rest Villages plan. I'm sure there's organizations out there that can figure out that piece, but for us, we have to know we can keep the people that surround the facility safe and provide the best, safest service we can provide for people. The reality is the high impact people, they're not going to accept those services. And to the extent they want those services, they can get them. They're downtown and their shelter space. And we've talked about this. I work with a lot of these shelters. There is shelter space. They can go to shelters. They don't have to go to safe rest villages. I know safe rest villages are no barrier places and that's why they want to go there and they don't want to go to shelters. I completely get that. But you know, Ted Wheeler has a plan, has a new plan for that. So I don't know if you guys know, but he is now, he and Sam Adams are now rolling out this alternative plan because I think they realize that this safe rest garbage is not going to get off the ground. Now that this is a PR shit show and everybody knows what this law really says and we are exposing the language in the law, things are changing. So yesterday, Wheeler announced an emergency order where he's triaging sweeping the camps and removing Ryan from all of this. And the reason he's using these emergency declarations is because it allows him to take over the divisions or whatever they're called so that, you know, that the commissioners control. So basically, he can take over the transportation division, the fire division, et cetera, and just leave those people out of it. So as you guys know, Wheeler's latest plan that he's rolling out via his homeless czar, our former mayor, Sam Adams, their latest plan is just to create some sort of warehouse FEMA run style encampment, zero barrier, no rules where these people actually want to go, where they can just go do their drugs and do whatever they want to do. So they'll be doing everything that they're currently doing on the streets. They'll actually want to go because it won't be like a shelter where they have rules to follow and they can't do their drugs and uh, can't bring 
pets and things like that. They'll just be able to do whatever they're doing now on the streets somewhere else. Um, I, I, my understanding is Wheeler just doesn't want to tangle with the ACLU and compel any kind of drug treatment or compel any kind of psychiatric treatment. So his alternative is pick everybody up off the streets, stop with the allowing encampments and camping downtown and instead create a place where you have to go if you want to stay in the city of Portland. I don't know what he'll do with people who don't want to go to these places, but I don't know why they wouldn't want to go because if he's really doing all these sweeps, which he is, I mean, they're, they're publicizing them and the quote unquote homeless advocates are getting enraged, um, because they don't, want homeless people swept they want them to be able to camp wherever they want to if if wheeler's really going to be sweeping continuing to sweep all these camps they're not going to want to stay there they're not going to want to camp out they're going to want to go to this fema style place where they don't have to move and they can just do whatever they want to do there so that's apparently his latest plan and i as long as it's not where near where like people are living and trying to work i mean like we talked about these are people engaged in criminal activity, leaving syringes and garbage everywhere. That's what the ordinance spells out. They shouldn't be in neighborhoods with people trying to live and work and kids trying to go to school. If they want to go do their drugs forever and throw their trash around, I guess Wheeler's creating some kind of warehouse for them to do that so that he doesn't have to tangle with the ACLU and get these people the real treatment and help that they need. And I guess barring him tangling with the ACLU, we should support that because at least it gets them off of our streets and out of our neighborhoods. And it's a win-win. They get to do whatever they want to do and everybody else can go about their life. Everybody functional can, can keep going to work and paying their taxes.
I have Eric Post with me from Eric Post Consulting, although Eric does a lot of things. In fact, he was just telling me about some mentorship that he does. Eric, can you tell us about all the hats that you wear? (laughs) Sure. I mean, I've been real fortunate to wear the business partners or the employees I've had in my life have been nothing but amazing, with the exception of one, which we can talk about later with a restaurant. And in every interaction I seem to have turns into something pretty beautiful in general. So uh, after I sold my real estate companies and mortgage companies and whatnot, it kind of freed me up to explore some creative side that I really wanted to explore. Well, what I found out through a conversation uh, one time was that I'm actually a creative and I was just using business to express my creativity. Oh, interesting. Did you, yeah. how did you find that out? You were working with like a coach or if it was a friend who was just insightful? <laughs> I was actually in Fiji at a retreat with Tony Robbins. He's got a, he's got a island and a resort there where he does these retreats with people. And I was there a couple of times, but one of the times I was just talking to him between sessions and he was asking me about my businesses and a little bit. And we got to know each other a little bit over the over the time I'd spent there. And because they're real small, intimate groups. And he put his hand on my shoulder. He goes, he goes, man, you're not an entrepreneur. He's like, you're just a creative guy that's using businesses to express your ideas. And it was like this huge just weight lifted off my shoulders. Because then I was like, you know what? That is so true. Now, now I can hire a little bit more with a little more clarity. And I can actually have this more identity that was more in alignment congruent with how I felt. I just didn't have the words for it. And I didn't quite have that person look me in the face and be like, man, you're not, you know, cause people I think take the label of entrepreneur, like a badge of honor. And to me, it was like an albatross, you know, it was just heavy. And it always felt like boring. an albatross to you. It really, the, the label of it did not the job, not the work of it, but the label of it. And then that identity attached to it did. I felt a little bit fraudulent with it. Um, because I knew my my weaknesses with businesses. And I feel like as an entrepreneur, and I was successful at it, I shouldn't have such self-awareness around these weaknesses. Well, it's because I was an entrepreneur, as creative, that I just was good at business, expressing creativity through business. But it doesn't mean I was a great entrepreneur. Um, I was great with people, and I was great with putting together people that helped me express my creativity, that believed in the vision, that believed in the product or the service. And so that's what I was. Do you feel like you were uncomfortable with the title because deep down you knew? I mean, you must have had, you must have intuited that what Tony Robbins was going to tell you later down the line was correct and you weren't comfortable in that box. For sure. I have a big, uh, I have an allergy to hypocrisy um, or people that aren't, in alignment with the words that they say. And so I, I felt slightly out of alignment there. Um, and so that, and that was like, shoot, that would have been 11 or 12 years ago. So I've been able, you know, for the last 10 years really changed the way I viewed myself in business and the way I positioned myself with my employees and how I thought of myself day to day when I was at my job or in the offices that I was, that I was working on. So, um, and the same thing with, when I'd be introduced when I was giving keynote speeches or when people were hiring me to do consulting, it was much easier for me to express who I was and what I was good at and what I wasn't good at rather than I'm a successful entrepreneur that's done these startup businesses. And it just, it never felt right. So yeah, I hope that makes sense. I've never really talked about this out loud too much. It makes a lot of sense. 
Did you know that Tony Robbins is the person who put Dog the Bounty Hunter on the map? No, I didn't know that. That's a funny. That's a funny connection. It's a funny connection. So, Dog has obviously like been canceled, and his language leaves a lot to be desired. But sure. uh, pre-cancellation, I <laughs> and I'm a huge trash TV fan. I loved that show. I read his book. I um, I just thought I loved his, the little motivational speeches that he would give mm. to the the criminals that he caught, you know, I mean, he'd sit, he'd sit and give them these long, sometimes they turn their lives around based on what he said. And then I think I heard him on a podcast and he was talking about, I don't even remember what I heard him on, but he was talking about how he learned how to build people up and he Hmm. learned about his true calling as a bounty hunter through Tony Robbins, because what, what really had happened is he had been in prison. I think he shot somebody. He, he had this horrible upbringing and he had been in prison and he had a, this, his life could have gone either way. He could have gone right back to prison. Um, but he, one of the FBI guys that was interfacing with him connected with him in this bizarre way and just kind of fell in love with his personality. The FBI guy knew Tony Robbins um, because he had worked with him and doing some motivational speaking and said, you got to meet this Tony Robbins guy. Tony Robbins was so impressed with him that he would have dog open for him. That's funny. So they well, got to be like super a huge close personality. Friends. Isn't that interesting though? How many lives Tony Robbins has touched? Oh, it's so wild. And, and I don't have that. I don't put really any, especially a single individual on a pedestal, really. I think everybody's fallible and everybody has so much to give at the same time. Well, sure. I mean, um, humans are complicated, right? But it's still cool to recognize um, the things that make particular people unique and special. And he's certainly oh. special in a lot of ways. So I've been, I've actually gone to every event he's ever done. And even wow. a couple of Since a couple when? Times. Yeah. Uh, since, since 2008. Um, so in, in 2008, I actually went to like five events just in, just wow. in that one year. Um, I, that was a year I just kind of dedicated myself to, to really understanding a whole bunch of things about human, human beings and humanity and myself. And so that was the first time I actually went to one of those events. And then I think it was in 2009, I was in Fiji twice. So I think it was in 2009, I had this conversation with him about this entrepreneur label. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's so, so are you still in touch with him and do you find his advice helpful still? I, I've graduated some from it and, and yes, I I find his, I find his work to be incredibly powerful as long as people are open to ideas that are different than the ones that they've held before. Um, he is a great example of, you know, you can only be a, you can only be a teacher to those who are ready to be taught sort of thing. Um, and but his wife is amazing. I spent some time with his wife, Sage. Uh, his team is amazing. But equally as powerful have been some human beings that I've met at the event that I'm still in close contact with over the last 10 years. Wow. And we still communicate. We still text or message, keep each other on social media. And these are incredible human beings doing wonderful things in the world. So uh, that is honestly one of the most powerful things about his work. For instance, one time I was actually after a session late night in Fiji, I walked down to the beach. It was like midnight to just sit there and like compress, decompress and think about all the things I'd learned for the day. And this guy came down and sat next to me and we had kind of, you know, made eye contact a couple of times. But when you go to these things, you don't ask, who are you? What are you worth? What do you do? 
you know, we're just, you share the same space and the same energy and you're there to learn and grow and you're not judging anybody. And so this guy came down and we started chatting. And at the time I had my real estate company and I was focusing on that. So he just started asking me, we had this, this two hour chat and he turns and looks at me. He goes, Hey, can I hire you? And I go, well, to do what? He's like, I own all of the Remaxes and, and, and I want you to come to Turkey and teach the entire country of my network, what you just talked about. Oh my gosh. And I was like, and I was like, let's do it. So I went to Turkey for a couple of weeks and went to Istanbul and, and all these different places and, and taught thousands of real estate agents and owners and brokers across the country about the ideas that I was using here in the States. So, you know, just like opportunities just open up when you, when you really put yourself in the line with, with amazing people. So it's not just about building yourself up internally and learning from Tony. It's also about the other people who are there, who are doing the same, who are clearly looking inward about what they need to do to make, to level up. And in that sense, they're, I mean, they're obviously looking outward at Tony too, but the idea is look at all these fantastic people who are, I mean, let's face it. I th- I think the most successful people are sponges, but I think it's rare to find find those people. You know, it's rare to find those people who are open to ideas and criticism and maybe things that are completely and totally radically different than how they want to think or the mindset that they're currently in. You know, not everybody would have responded to Tony Robbins telling you, "Hey, you're a creative." Not everybody would have responded. Not everybody would have gone with that in the way that you did. And used it. It's almost like therapy. It sounds, it's probably was a lot of hard work. Well, how that came to be and you're right. I think you really nailed it, but, but in general, that's the way I, I find inspiration everywhere. I, everywhere I go, I look intentionally for inspiration or something to be curious about, whether it's in human behavior or it's in a, an odd plant or whether it's in the weather or whether it's in somebody, the way somebody lives or how they speak to the cashier in front of me. I, I constantly am just looking at cause and effect. So in my world, I look cause and effect, cause and effect. Instead of hypothetically thinking about what works, I'm processing, well, if, if that person laughed and they're having a better time, what the person in line in front of me say that made them smile and laugh? Okay, cool. Let me, let me register that and say, if I want to make somebody laugh. That would be a good way to do it. Right? So I'm just, I'm constantly looking at cause and effect not just trying to think of things on my own. And, and so this, this mass input of data constantly is really giving me a good idea of, of what, what works, what doesn't, what, what you should say, what you shouldn't say. It totally replaced my thinking because the game had changed. You know, the yeah. rules had changed, the economy had changed. So I made a promise to my family that if I invested this money, because it's expensive to do these things, if I, in times like that, if I invested this money, if I invested my time and if I was away from the people I love and the businesses I was responsible for, then I was going to make sure it was an investment that was worthy. So yes, I was there to learn and to actually implement, not just to go and, you know, have some sort of mental masturbation session and feel good about myself. You know, I was there to do, to do the work I needed to do to actually make changes that needed to be made. So, so I was always, I have always been, after getting the Marine Corps, I've always been in sales. Really, oh, you were in the Marine the Corps. Reason, I went straight from high school to the Marine Corps. Yeah. And how long were you? Uh, just to double click on that for a minute. How long were you in the Marine Corps? Yeah, between between active training and reserves was just total of six years. Okay. So. And so you got out of that, and you decided not to continue with um, 
like you decided not to make it a career. You decided to do something else. I did. I did. And it was very intentional. I loved the time. My experience there was fantastic. I wanted that challenge. I needed that challenge. I needed the, the opportunity to kind of flex my freedom. And, you know, I, I lived with Eskimos at one point for a couple of months. I was in Lithuania. I, you know, just did some random things as a young man where you're forced to take on heavy responsibilities where the stakes are high. And that and was you're really also good for me. Learning, and, like humility, leadership skills. Um, for sure. How to build yourself up. How to. For sure. A lot of it really is about humility, though, right? And then how to come out of that a better person, how to come out of adversity and grit a better person. And so you probably came out of there transformed. Transformed, but also with a with just a deeper perspective of the things that matter and the things that don't. And our society and our culture and individually, it's easy to get caught up on really things that have no importance when you really step back and are able to get some perspective. What did you so think that was, mattered when you went in and how did that change? The, the way I looked at leadership and interconnectivity of groups of people changed dramatically. You know, especially when you think of the Marines, I'm not the biggest guy, I'm not the toughest guy, I'm not the smartest guy, but I always held the number one billet. I always graduated from a class with a, with a top leadership billet or the, or the academic leader, both, actually both of them. Um, you know, the honor graduate or whatever, or every unit I was, I was given the leadership position. And, and that was simply because I had a deep curiosity and a deep care for the people around me. And, and that was just evident come to find out. I didn't quite know at the time how powerful that was because I was young, but I knew that I couldn't intimidate, I couldn't lead by intimidation. I couldn't lead by being the, the smartest. I couldn't lead by being the fastest. But I could lead by by them having zero doubt that there was nobody there that cared more about their well-being and their future than me, you know, and, and, and that was just kind of an innate thing that I realized, especially when the stakes are so high, that if you have any ego attached to your position or if you have any doubt or, or entitlement or selfishness attached to your position, I think that's toxic. So I learned that pretty quickly. I learned how to take somebody from different parts of the country with different backgrounds and get them to be one cohesive unit, you know, um, those were, those are valuable skills, but it, it sales, <laughs> it, it sales. And I never thought of myself as a sales guy. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you two quick stories real quick. I, even though I was in sales, I hated the idea of being a salesman. Right. Person. And I would say, who doesn't? It's I'm so a consultant or, you know, all these things. I'll, I'll tell you these two, two stories. One story, I, I met this guy named Chet Holmes. Unfortunately, he's passed away, but he wrote a book called the ultimate sales machine. And we were sitting there talking and eating and he's a, he's a consummate sales guy. Right. And so I, I, I went to him and was like, Hey man, I don't think of myself as a sales guy. I'm in sales right now. I do some sales training. I just don't think of myself as a sales guy. He goes, well, do you have a good product? I go, yeah. He's like, are you good at what you do? I go, yeah. He's like, do you care about your customers? I go, yeah. He goes, excuse my language. He goes, then why the fuck would you let them go get some, a worse price and worse service from people you care about? Like if, if you think that you're the best and you, and you can do the best for your clients, why don't you close on them like a freight train? Yeah, was was his quote to me. And I was like, man, that's a little aggressive, but I get what you're saying. And it, it opened my eyes up to where if I really actually did care about them, then my ego's getting in the way. That it's, I'm worried about rejection. I'm worried about being perceived in a certain way. But if I really genuinely cared about them, and I did have a great product and a great service, and I could I could really prove that, then why would I let them go and get inferior service and inferior product at a worse price? That, that, that would, that's, not a, that's not a good way to live. And it sounds like so that was my ego. Talk. Also embracing confidence without ego, right? Confidence that you were selling a valuable product. 
confidence that you were the right guy. And I think that's hard to cultivate too. I think it's, it's hard to, hmm. Unless well, you're a narcissist, I think it's hard. I think I, I think it's hard to recognize that. It's part of loving yourself, right? I actually think it's more about self-awareness. And for me, self-awareness, the, 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 the depth of which I've tried to, you know, understand self-awareness, the, the further you go with that, the less ego you have. And the more toxic you realize that ego actually is. And ego, both in the spiritual sense and in the sense that we talk about society, both, both versions of how people define ego. So I, I think that the, the, the deeper you go in understanding yourself, the things that you are and the things that you aren't, the more your ego gets set aside and the more beautiful other people and yourself become naturally because there isn't a filter that you're looking at them through you. You don't need to make the person on the other side of the table be something in order for your existence to be proven, right? You don't, you don't need them to fit in a box in order for your significance to matter, right? And we see that in politics. We see that in labeling. We see that in Portland. People say, oh, you are this. And if they get to label you as that, that means their existence is has been justified. I don't I don't need to do that at all, in, especially now. So that's one thing how I looked at sales. And then the other thing when I started teaching people, and I've I've actually coached you know lawyers and doctors and and dentists and all sorts of people that didn't know that the practice they're actually be doing is business and sales. It just happens to be lawyering or practicing law, but they're really in the business of the, the business of law and the sales of law, right? Um, so one of the things I I would do I'd sit there. And at the very, very beginning, I was like, I know you guys don't think of yourself as salespeople, but just for fun, if you were to list off all of the wildly amazing traits, if you were to have the, a world-class salesperson in front of you, what kind of traits would they possess? And I have the whiteboard there. And, you know, I'd just go around the table or run in the room or whatever. And they'd be like, professional, knowledgeable, empathetic, a good listener, you know, punctual, uh, you, you know, in, high of integrity. And they list off all these amazing things. And I'd list them verbally. I was like, all these, I was like, who doesn't want to be these things? <laughs> if this is what you're saying that a good salesperson is, then why wouldn't you want to be this list of wildly amazing things? They never listed anything that wasn't good if they had a vision of a good salesperson that was helping them solve a problem. So I, I was able to quickly change their identity from you know, being a lawyer or being a consultant or being a, into a salesperson because I understood what being a good salesperson actually did. And so wildly incredible list of high, high, high important qualities that a good salesperson actually is. So identifying as that is a lot easier once you understand what, what a good salesperson really is. And when you're coaching and teaching, what are you teaching people to do? Like, um, when I'm not at a big firm anymore, I practice now, it's just two of us and we use contract lawyers. Um, but we were at big firm and so I'm, I've, we've had all the gurus, right? We've had the diversity guru, the me person selling us on meditation. We had the implicit bias guru. We had the, uh, f I mean, the, the, this would never happen today, but there was a woman who came in. It might have been a trial consultant. There was a woman who came in to work with the women, very, very few of us. Um, and this was early 2000s, so a lot fewer than I'm sure there are now. I'm, I'm sure there are a lot more now, but very, and there were very few of us circulating in the community, but very few of us. There's a woman who came in to talk to us about um, how to dress, 
uh, how to, and in a very, this would never fly today, but it was stuff like, um, don't wear, and she's talking to people with law degrees, females with law degrees who are working at a big firm. I mean, we never would have gotten that far if we were doing any of these things, but it was stuff like, don't wear a skirt that's too short. Don't wear perfume. Don't, um, maybe even masculine it up a little bit. I mean, the advice she was giving us was poor, um, but also condescending. Um, But, you know, so all those people um, are, they're always circulating through law firms, as you know. I mean, you've got the perfect job because you will never be unemployed. A law firm will always be working to bring you in to have you speak to people. So if you were going to come into like a big law firm in Portland, do, do they tell you, what they think their issues are or what they are looking to improve? Or do you come in as a consultant and do like some surveying and figure out where you, what value you can bring? Tell me how that works. I think there's, there's two lines of thinking here just to use this real world example. I love that you actually bring a real world example to a conversation, by the way, that's, that's good. That's productive. Um, But I think there's, there's two things. One, the way I coach and the way I parent are the same thing. And, and also the way I lead people, if I have employees and, and it's important, I, I think of myself this way too, that you can't teach anything really. And this is the problem with our schools, by the way, people try and teach all everything all the time when really self-discovery is the most powerful form of persuasion. So the way I parent and the way I coach and the way I do consulting, I set an environment for self-discovery. So I might know what they need to learn, but if I go in there with the idea that I'm going to teach them something, I'm going to teach you something, it might be an intellectual adaptation of the concept. You might understand what I'm talking about, but you don't switch the identity. You don't become the thing that you need to learn, right? You don't actually take the knowledge and go from an intellectual understanding into an integration of your business or your being. Unless you discover it on your own, then you might, right? So if, if I'm teaching sales, and I just talk about, you know, these are the things of a great salesperson. 10% of the room might do something. 5% of the room might do something, make, make an improvement. But if I, if I Im- invite the group to go on this journey of becoming salespeople on their own, and I'm just happen to provide the boundaries and the, and the momentum behind it, the push behind it, that's where everything changes. So there's two things. There really is a, a deep understanding of how people work and how they actually learn things. And it's not by just sitting there and being taught or reading a book. Like you have to fucking do it on your own. You literally have to decide that's what you're going to do. So self-persuade, it's self-discovery. You know, a good teacher, a good instructor just just knows what the environment they can provide that actually lets them do that in a faster term than they would on their own. Secondly, I do think that there's some merit to the idea when Henry Ford said, if I would have asked the people what they would have wanted, they would have said a faster horse. They they wouldn't have wanted a car because they didn't know a car was possible. Or Steve Jobs would have made a, you know, a, a 15 second or a 30 second anti-skip CD player instead of the MP3 player. If he went to his people and asked, what do you need? What do you want? So I think a, a person that actually has clients or if I have kids or if I have, you know, a coaching client in front of me, I better fucking know what they need. My job as an expert is to know what they need. So if I go to if because if you know what you would have needed, you would have fixed it already. Right. How do you do that so, with a group. Well, there's some basics in a group that you can observe. I think if, as an observer, I view myself as an observer more than I am a participant or anything else. And 
when I observe a group or when I look for language, when, a, when somebody calls me and they say, hey, we have this problem, I'm looking for a certain language. And just by a certain language, I know that there's a, there's a shade of what they're telling me is a truth and there's a whole other version of the truth that's actually not being spoken. Those are the things I'm actually more curious about. <laughs> those, those are where the real advancements, and it's those little teeny nuances between what they think they need and what actually would move the needle that, that, that I kind of pride myself in being good at understanding the differences. So I think I think the wrong like follow up questions. Is it nonverbals? How they? It's probably oh. everything, right? How they dress? What? How do they fix their hair? How do? Are how kempt or unkempt are they? Um, everything down to appearance to af- voice affect, maybe even I don't know. What do you look for? You're you're thinking like a trial lawyer right now. <laughs> hey, 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 you are. You're, I, I, I can see this. <laughs> Which, which is really, which is really probably productive in what you do um, when you're trying to get a certain outcome. I, I'm a little bit more flexible than that. So, for instance, I try and actually not make a bunch of assumptions by the way they're dressed, or by by very few things. I try and not make assumptions. I'm, I actually think some of the biggest challenges we have is that we we think we grow and expand by by adding things on, by learning new things, I think actually it's uh, it's an undoing of many things. It's an unprogramming. It's an unlearning. It's an un, like you actually strip away uh, policies and procedures. You strip away, you know, <laughs> agenda items. You strip away so many things. It's actually where it starts, really start to breathe a little bit better in, in businesses and in, in couples actually or parenting or with your children. Like really progress isn't made by learning new things and becoming new things. It's actually fucking mostly undoing things. So I'm looking at things that we can undo, not add on to. And then, again, if you're, like, looking at a group and you're supposed to be coaching this group, how do you determine what that group what that group needs? What do you well, do obviously, to facilitate? Well, I'll obviously have a little bit more detail. Well, I'll have more detail, but, I, but there's a couple little fun drills just when you do introductions, you know, like, that you can just introduce and you can start to see personalities of groups. The group dynamics are highly impacted by a single individual, uh, either either high on the spectrum of a toxic person or high on the spectrum of a of a benevolent, you know, really servant leader. It 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 it'll really sway. So if you see a bunch of people that are that are just milk toast in the way they talk about themselves or talk about their jobs or whatever, it's a whole other challenge. And we have we have somebody over here that's you can tell is the leader of the drama or the leader of of a stable culture. So just in the introductions, I know kind of right away that that the dynamics of the team are what's most important. It's individual personalities that make the company. You know, they can have all the mission statements they want on the board and in their in their in their manual, but it's the personalities of the people that are in the walls of the company that are really the, the company. So if you understand the people and you understand personalities, then you can actually make some tweaks. If you just if you just go on corporate structures and and basic sort of it doesn't it's just you're just another normal guy you know in the office. And are you actually still doing this kind of training and consulting work? Yeah, I, it's never been anything I've actually really uh, advertised. But how it was happening, I'd, I'd give a speech or a keynote somewhere and talk about things. And I generally, when I talk, I try not to say things that people will either agree with me or disagree. I try and say things that people say, I've never thought about that way before. Tell me more, right? Because everybody can galvanize a room. Like, like if you're in politics and you're on the right, you're a Republican party, you can talk and just galvanize everybody in the room. That's not leadership, right? Same thing on the left or, or whatever, or same thing in business. If I get them to disagree with everything that I say, then they don't need me. They already know all this stuff. 
or if I say things they, that they disagree with, now I'm an enemy on accident. So I try and position my ideas and my thoughts in, in a way that's valuable, which is like, oh my God, I never thought about that. <laughs> Tell me more. That's, that's where value comes from. So that's, that's how they would they'd approach me at a, at a meeting or find me online or say, hey, you know, obviously you think about things a different way. You know, can, can you come talk to us? That's how it kind of happened. And then I, I'm just so curious about how you gained, you have so much knowledge and experience, the depth of the kinds of things that you're talking about. This is real layered stuff. I mean, you're an onion. It's, it's knowledge, it's experience, it's, you know how to share it with others, you know how to connect with others, you, you're, you know how to sell, you know how to be creative. Did you, what is your educational background? I have a high school degree. Um, I graduated high school and then, you know, I was, I was decent in school. And so I knew that college really wasn't going to be a challenge. I knew I just go drink a bunch of beer and have a great time and, you know, do the thing. So it was junior year of high school. It was actually, this, it was a true story. I was walking down the hall with a buddy and he'd just taken a, a athletic scholarship. We ran track together and he just got a pole holding scholarship at the University of Washington. He's like, what are you going to do? What are you going to, you're going to, you know, play sports somewhere or you're going to go to college or whatever. I'm like, I don't know, but I want to do something kind of hard. And we walked, literally walked around the corner, going to the lunchroom for, for lunch. And it was recruiting day. And all of the tables were there of all the recruiters. And I was like, maybe I'll join the, maybe I'll join the military. Wow. So I literally, as we're having this conversation, I just, I, I made an appointment with, with all the branches of the service wow. and started, started, and I didn't even, at, at the time I was very independent. I started raising, pretty much raising myself, which was what was going on in my household around 16 or so. So, I didn't even tell. I signed up for the Marine Corps. Didn't even talk to my mom or my stepdad about it. And signed up and, and did my thing. And it wasn't until I was actually signing up up in Swan Island. And they had to keep me overnight because uh, I just left after basketball practice just to go finish all my paperwork. It was like 1030 at night. They're like, oh, well, we'll finish you up in the morning. We'll put you up in a hotel. I was like, cool. Let me just call my mom real quick. So they handed me a phone. I called my mom. I was like, hey, I'm not coming home tonight. I'm signing up for the Marine Corps. I'll be home tomorrow after school. And she's like, what? I'm like, don't worry. I got it. You know, so I was very, I was very independent because I had to be at the time. So I just went straight to the Marine Corps and then into business. But but I believe in education. I mean, I read books and I attend webinars and seminars. and, oh, no, and that's I have obvious been, to you know, me. Yeah, uh, so I just didn't the, – the, the typical kind of package education didn't make a lot of sense to me. But that doesn't – I'm not against it. It just – it wasn't what I was interested in. So, so tell me about – and I, if this is too personal, just tell me. But I'm interested in what you said about – being independent at 16 and raising yourself um, to the extent you're comfortable. Can you tell us, I'm sure these circumstances shaped you. Um, can you, and, and probably shape the advice that you give others or the way that you coach others. Can you, what, can, what, if anything, can you tell us about what, what that growing up environment was like? Yeah, sure. I, I talk about some of this publicly. There's a couple speeches I've given that I do talk a little bit about it. But I try not to make it my identity um, because I don't. I think that that does pin you in a box or put you in a box, and I do think that limits you from growth and exploration of different versions of yourself. So I, I, I don't rely on this as as an excuse or a def, or a way that it defines who I am now. Just to tell you, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, when my mom and dad, my biological dad, got divorced, I didn't see him for twenty seven years. And I saw him a few years, but after I like, think third grade, just because of what life happened, so you know, then he was out of my life, and it was sad because I loved I loved him. He was my dad, and and we had a great relationship. And so 
I didn't see him for a really long time. My mom got remarried to a guy that wasn't, turned out to be not a great guy, but he adopted me. So I, I was adopted. My, my last name changed when I was in the fourth grade. And so my identity started changing and, and you know, it's one of those things where he even, you know, did spend a little bit of time in jail for the things that he did to us. And he just wasn't a good man come to find out. Hopefully he's doing fine now, but I cut him off, you know, after I grew up, um, for many reasons, but I cut him off. So hopefully he's doing fine now. I don't wish him ill will, but wasn't great for our family. Um, and so it was, it was because there was so much chaos there that I just, I've kind of buried myself in school and sports and, you know, the more excuses I gave to be out of the house, the better. <laughs> so it was great, you know, and I had good friends and I, I think for some reason I was given the gift of, of not making excuse or not indulging in negative emotions. You know, I've down days like anybody else. I've got, um, you know, dark thoughts like anybody else, but I don't indulge in them. And, and that, and, and neither do I indulge in the, in fake, you know, other emotions either. I just, I don't indulge in emotions. I try and appreciate them for what they are. I try and understand them and celebrate them. I don't manage them, but I don't indulge in any of them. I, I don't take possession of any of my emotions. I just never have. I didn't know I was doing that when I was younger. I understand it now. and I'm just grateful that I was given that perspective somehow, but I, I just observed my emotions, like I said. So when things were really shitty or really dark, I didn't let it just drag me, you know, to where it wanted to take me. I was able to just sit with them, you know, and make the most out of them and keep moving forward. And unfortunately, I have a half brother that wasn't able to do that. So we have the same backgrounds, essentially. But, you know, he ended up running away and joining the Crips and becoming a high ranking member of the 13th Street Gang. And, you know, he's been shot and he's been in jail dozens and dozens of times. And he's missing a leg now because you get a parallel. Like, He's, I think he's still living on Burnside, downtown Portland, you know, homeless, or, you know, and so we've got wildly different lives, but same backgrounds. And so there's an element of nature that is important to understand. There's an element of nurture to understand and appreciate, but I just don't let, I don't let anything that happens to me, good or bad, define me. I don't, I don't attach to my successes or my losses either way. Do you think, I love it that you said that, because my follow-up was going to be, what is it about you? do you think that enabled you to rise above all that and persevere? Because I think 90% of people would have ended up like your half brother. Um, As a follow-up though, I mean, that's helpful information as a follow-up. Do you think, where did that come from? Uh, Was it, did you have an inspirational teacher or a mentor in your life or somebody you looked up to, or was it just you intuited it? It was just always inside of, you, you were born like that. What, what, what is your theory on that? I, I think it came from a, a place of it's pragmatic. You know, I don't think you have to be super inspired to understand that if you have some sort of accountability for contributing to your, like I had a sister and my mom too, that if I, if I wanted to support or protect or be for them for them in any way, even emotionally, it was pragmatic, you know, or for my own success. Like, I just was somehow able to understand that nobody else should dictate either your happiness or your depression or your value or anything. It's not, it's, it's the opposite of the idea that you can do anything you set your mind to. I'm not saying that at all, at all. Cause I actually think that's toxic advice. I, I, I actually believe it's more of a, I get to decide 
so much more. My, my autonomy, my intellectual autonomy, my emotional autonomy, my financial autonomy, I just understand how pragmatic that is. Because if I can do that for myself, then I can also be there for other people. If I'm just focused on other people, if I'm just focused on myself, I can't do either. And there's such an important there's such an important balance between autonomy and contributing to the collective that I think is lost. I think people are all in, they find all of their meaning by doing stuff for other people, or they're all in for themselves. And it's there's not a really good balance between understanding how important it is to be strong individually and contributing to other people at the same time. That's where I found, I think I found my success there. Why is it that you think you had that understanding and your half brother didn't? I think if, if anybody successful at anything doesn't credit a little bit of luck that they're wildly wrong, I think it's a little bit of luck. I would, I would say that I was fortunate that some of the friends I had around me had great parents. And so when I was hanging out at their house, I, I didn't just see only dysfunction. I, I saw function too. I just saw healthy relationships and love and support. So I think I'm lucky there. Um, I, I think I'm lucky to never have too much ego. Um, I think when you're, you know, you're young and you're in high school and, you know, I, I was reasonably athletic and I was reasonably good looking. So you get some attention for those things, but I never felt comfortable with accepting it. I was, I always had a sense of like, who the fuck am I? You know, this is cool, but, but who the fuck? I never truly took possession of too much either way. And so I don't know. I, I, I think a little bit of luck and I, I hate to just say that because that sounds like I'm not taking any accountability, but I never made too bad of a decision that stuck with me long-term or I never made a decision that, you know, really impact. I just, I made a bad enough decision. I was like, Oh shit. Okay. That's my boundary down this way, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, or now I made, now I have a little bit of money and I can be too indulgent. Oh no, that's not, that's not good either. So I kind of understood the boundaries to keep yourself in. And I think I actually understood that if you really have any sort of goals in mind, then you don't have unlimited choices. The, the the better your goals are, the higher your goals are, the limited, the more limited your choices actually are. And this whole idea that we have all this freedom, you can choose to do anything. No, if if you want to be an Olympic athlete, and you have to, you don't, you only have so many choices of what you can eat and how often you can train and your sleep schedule. Or if you want to be an attorney, you don't have a choice. You you there's certain things you have to do. It limits your choices. Same thing with money. Same with being a good dad or a good husband. You know, you can't just go out all night, every night. You have accountability. There's choices. So I think I was fortunate enough to know that if I wanted to be in sports, then I needed to go work hard. And if you work hard, then you can't go down this path of being, you know, indulgent and negative emotions in this case. To, to circle back to your, your question. Where did you grow up? In Milwaukee. So yeah. you're a native Oregonian. And what generation Oregonian are you? I was born in Walla Walla. Oh, you were? Um, okay. Yeah, Washington. So I, 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 that's like third generation Washington. Oh wow! So. How did you guys end up down here? Was it after the divorce? Well, when I was, yeah, when I was three, it was when mom and dad got divorced. So she moved, she moved down here. Okay, got it. Yeah, she had family was, or something. Me and my sister. Uh, no, not at first. It was just, it was just like an escape. I think. Wow. Um, yeah. Well, and the, so after. Um, the Marines, what you do, what, what's your next step? So I thought I was going to be a cop because it's oh, like, you got out of the Marines and I was, I was, I was in explosives and, and I had some explosives, um, experience in the Marines. And so I thought, you know, I'll, 
what else do you do? You know, so I actually applied for this anti-terrorism team at the, at the Port of Portland, a federal okay. job. And, but it's a, it was a long hiring process, right? You know, like six months to a year long of going through everything. So I couldn't just not have a job. So I ended up taking this job where I was giving demos on wave runners <laughs> where for a summer. I was like, I need a job because I, I have this, this cop, you know, opportunity maybe, but I need something in the meantime. And so, um, the then my girlfriend on the Willamette. Oh, that's so, so funny. Okay. Yeah, Bob Lampier's Beaverton Honda Yamaha yeah. just started selling Wave Runners at okay. the time. <laughs> and so people would go out to Beaverton and be like, well, I don't know which one I want to buy. We're in a parking lot in Beaverton, right? Right. And I so the owner. Yeah. So they rented this little spot on the Willamette River on the Milwaukee boat ramp. And I was sat down there and they just send people over and I would just give them a demo. I'd say, all right, you want to buy this one or that one? That's so interesting. So that, yeah, that's, that's how I got started in sales. Wow. And, and was it, were you successful? Yeah, wildly. So what happened was, well, so, so to go back, like I, I started picking berries when I was 12, you know, in a field, I'd wake up at four thirty in the morning and go and pick berries. Right. And I, you know, I worked in warehouses and worked construction and all sorts of stuff through high school. I worked at a, at a boat ramp pumping gas for a summer, you know, so just, I sold vacuums door to door. I did door to door. Yeah. Like, like whatever. Cause I needed money, you know, yeah, to do, yeah. to buy a car and have yeah. gas and live and eat when I was a kid. So I just, I would, I, I sold credit card over the phone, you know, telemarketing even, you yeah. know, as a junior in high school, I'd sit at a freaking desk and sell credit cards. So just following a script, it wasn't sales. I was just right. following a script, but you know, just but doing it, it just sales, had no human. Cause you have to have a nice voice. I mean, I did telemarketing yeah. in high school too. You have to have a nice voice. You have to deal with irate people who are mad cause you bothered them at dinner. You got to keep them on the phone, right? So there's some right. sales. I mean, you're you're sticking to the script, but you got to do it. You got to know something about people. Yeah, and I had no idea what I was doing at the time. I was right. like, okay, I go to <laughs> yeah, the Nickelad. Remember the Nickelad? I'd go to the Nickelad, like, oh, yeah, oh I, I, I can make that. up. Yeah, totally. That's like I'd circle the thing, and be like, oh, well, it it promises I can make up to twenty dollars an hour. That sounds amazing. I'm gonna try that, you know. So whatever. Um, that's what I did. Um. But uh, what was your question? You asked, um, asked okay, so you were going to be a cop, but then you took a job doing oh. the Wave Runner oh, demos. Yeah, yeah. And then um, you were wildly successful at that. Well, what happened was I didn't get the cop job. I got like the top 10 or something. Like There was thousands of people that applied for this job. And, and I think I got down to the top 10 or the top 20 at the time. But I didn't get the job. And so then, but I was I was having fun on the water, you know, giving people rides and then I was like, well, what if we started renting them? And so they're like, okay, yeah, here's a budget. You know, buy a few of these and you can start a rental program. So I started renting them out, you know, and then I started these tours. So I'd give, I'd take like 10 people on a tour in the Lambert River and I'd sell these at auctions or whatever, just as a way to make some other revenue for the, for the store. And then if somebody bought a waiver, they might have a boat. So they would trade in a boat. So now all of a sudden the, the manager was like, well, can you sell this boat? I'm like, well, I think so. So I put on a lot and we just started selling boats. But by the time I left, that's actually what got all my business experience. There was a guy I worked with Bob and um, they came to me and Bob and they said, here's your budget, you know, do what you can. So by the time I left, you know, we had 14 employees and we had three boat lines. And I think we had something like $14 million of inventory and we had our finance department, maintenance department. Um, so I grew it into a boat dealership uh, with this guy, with other guy, Bob. And I got all my business experience to start off as a result of being in the boat business for sure. And I did that for about six years. 
That's amazing. And then, so it sounds like you were doing so well. Why did you leave? Well, because then when you're making money, then they want to run it like a car lot. And and they came to us and said, oh, now we want to have, you know, the system where you turn over the F&I guy and then you turn them the, the warranty guy and kind of run it like like a car lot. I was like, no, these are, I'm, I was selling two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollar offshore race boats at this point. And I kind of developed a niche for that kind of client. And I was like, I'm going to their homes. I'm, I mean, I'm going to spaghetti factory with them. And we're talking about all the options. Like this isn't a car lot sort of business. Yeah. And I'm not interested in that anyway. So I left. And then, um, yeah. And that, then you did what after that? Well, I was going to, I knew I wanted to get into real estate and I knew I wanted to get into real estate at the time, but I was worried I didn't have enough out because at the time I was interested in sales. I'm like, well, if I'm interested in sales, why would I sell the biggest thing that there is to sell? (laughs) And in my world at the time, it was a house, right? That that was my logic. So, and I I had some friends that were builders and I had built some homes during high school and I had some construction in the Marine Corps experience. So they're like, you know, construction you know how to sell, get your real estate license. Cause I'm tired of dealing with agents that don't know either. And so I, um, I was going to do that, but I was worried. I didn't have enough outside sales experience. I was worried. I just kind of had more retail experience. So I took an outside sales job for a year while I was studying for my real estate license. And what was um, that? Selling, what did you sell? I, was, I, was, I sold packaging. Oh, interesting. Really? Yeah, like I, boxes I that, or? Boxes, packaging. I took that job because I wanted to learn hardcore business to business commodity sales. And I figured if I could learn to sell a commodity to a business, then I could sell anything. If I could get past the receptionist, at the front desk, That's you know, so if smart. I could. So I did that for a year and I was opening even worse. I was opening a new territory for this company. I was out of Washington. I was opening the <laughs> Oregon territory. Oh wow! So course. I took on a beast. I, I took on a beast. I hated the job. I mean, I, I hated that sort of job. It, it was fascinating. I learned a lot, but I realized that's not for me. Like, what did that you hate about it? I, I felt like an ambulance chaser almost like I felt like, okay, I saw, let's say a Columbia corrugated box and I saw them pull into this, this manufacturing company. I was like, Oh, there's a lead for me, but I just felt weird about it. And then I'd go in and try and steal the business. Yeah. And I have come to the conclusion that the way I position all of my ideas, that all of my ideas or all of my businesses aren't ever predicated on the demise of somebody else's anymore. And I think a lot of people set up their business or they come to their political beliefs or whatever. And the way that they predicate the success of their idea or their business is only if the other person fails or another business fails. And I think that's the, the sure way to, to make sure that your own idea eventually fails or your own business fails. So I just didn't like that. I was only going to grow this business through stealing business from somebody else. I didn't like it. It didn't feel right to me. So, so then you, so then you, what you start, you got your real estate license and then you were selling yeah. homes. Then I, get, then I got into real estate and, and the funny story about that, I took the job. I hadn't really quite done the math of what the average income was for the for first couple of year real estate agent. And there was this guy in my office named Bob Smith, who was that guy, you know what I mean? Who, who just, he dressed the party, the silver perfect hair and he spoke eloquently and kind of this swagger about him. And I was like, Oh, that's the guy, you know? So I went to him and I was like, Bob, you know what, what should I expect? It was like two weeks after I've been in the office and, like, what can I expect? He's like, well, you seem sh- super sharp. And I think you could, you know, at least do kind of the average for what we're doing right now. And that's about six deals a year. I was like, okay, cool. Thanks. And I went back to my desk and I figured out the math and that was going to be like a $50,000 a year thing. I was like, this isn't what I, this isn't what I signed up for. You know, like I can't do what I promised my family I was going to do 
I make 50 grand and that's a step back from my other job. Like, so oh, whoa, whoa, what did I do here? And you had kids to support. Not, not yet. Oh, okay. Not yet. But I, so this was, this was 2000. I was married, but no kids yet. This oh, was I see. 2002. So it was sort of like this vision that you're wife yeah. at the time had yeah. and you had it was like that was not going to be supported by a fifty thousand yeah. dollar a year job yeah yeah and, exactly. and that's especially because my luck pay. too right it's real estate so the economy goes up the economy goes down prices go up prices go totally. down so what i did was i said okay if that's what the average is and i went back to my desk i literally had this conversation with myself i said okay if that's what the average is then i must do everything the exact opposite of what the average real estate agent does and I had this thought of like, okay, basically real estate is a basically copying of mediocrity. You know, everyone does the same flyers. They do the same open houses. They do all the same things. So then the production of all the agents is roughly about the same. The difference between the, the, the top quartile producers and the middle court, the middle, you know, two thirds, let's say, or, or second and third quartile was like massive. I'm, I'm thinking, I think it's it was huge. 8X at the time. It, yeah, it was massive. So I was like, okay, then let me just ignore all the standard teachings and stuff. And let me look for inspiration in outside industry. So I was looking at what like Nike was doing. I was looking at what car dealerships were doing. I was looking at what uh, bookstores were doing. I was looking at what other industries were doing. I was trying, and then I tried to bring that innovation or my, the thought to my own process. In the first year, I ended up doing like 63 transactions, which was wild um, instead of six, right? So I had 10X. What, can you think of some yeah. examples that you were able to incorporate to do that kind of gangbuster sales that year? Yeah, absolutely. I just didn't, I didn't speak like a real estate agent. I didn't think like a real estate agent. If I did an open house, I wasn't holding an open house in the, in the typical sense. So everything was very, was very well thought out. I was like, well, if I'm going to do an open house, I'm not just going to sit there and put out a couple of signs and hope and pray. So I would walk the neighborhood on a Thursday and hand out at least 150 invitations and knock on every door and say, Hey, Mr. And Mrs. Jones has invited me, has chosen me to sell their home. I'm going to hold it open this weekend. Do you know anybody that would love to be your neighbor? Right? So I would, I would walk the freaking neighborhood and knock on doors and had an invitation to go. And then, and then if I held an open house, I was like, then everybody's going to know about it. It's going to be in the paper. It's going to be, I'm going to have signs ahead of time. I'm going to have coming. So I was one of the first guys in Portland that did like a, like a house open Sunday sign, but I put it out on a Thursday. Right. It, like I just kept thinking about things that were so different. And then I realized if somebody walks into the door, it's a totally different lead. If they saw it online or in the paper, rather than they just found the signs and followed, followed it in as an example. So I had a well thought out dialogue pre-programmed in my head based on the type of lead it was walking in. I just didn't say, Hey, here's, here's a flyer. Let me know if you have any questions. I was there to convert every single person that came through the door. And so I would just practice these little, I would test little things that would work. You know, if I got their phone number, okay, how did I get their phone number? And I just duplicate that. Nothing was a mystery to me. So, well, and I, you know, you're smart enough uh, that you probably knew that this was an additional bonus to, the hard work you were putting in going door to door, but as you're going door to door, the neighbors are meeting you. They're putting a face to a name. They see this nice guy who's well-spoken, who's obviously very smart and doing something innovative. And if that's me and I close the door, I'm going to turn to my husband and go, hey, if we ever sell our house, I really like this guy. And I'm going to hang on to that flyer or take a picture of it so I can remember your name. That's how, that's really how it works. Even, even, you know, how real estate agents would put the directional signs on the corner right leading into the, the neighborhood. 
I knew if I lived on the corner, that'd be annoying to always have these signs. On, on my, and nobody ever asked. So I was like, oh, let me be the only guy that ever asked. So if I won't put a sign, I would go knock on the door and go, hey, I'd say, hey, I know I don't need your permission, but I'm sure as you lived here, it's been super annoying that you always have these signs on the corner of your lot. Before I put this up, would you mind, this would really help me sell your neighbor's house down the street. Would you mind if I put the sign there? And they'd be like, I've lived here 20 years and nobody's ever asked me. And it's always been a pain in the ass, you know? And so I would just constantly think like, how would I just not be seen like any other real estate agent in the market? And I would just do that constantly. That was just another little example. It's so easy. That's so, I love that. It's so smart. I love listening to this. It's so inspiring. So then, so you're selling houses and how long are you doing that? Well, I still do it, but uh, oh, so I was do. in 2002. Yeah, I still have a license there. But I, in 2005, I opened my first brokerage. So I, I so I became pretty pretty well known in the area for selling lots of real estate at the time. Like I said, my first year I did 63, which was really rare. And I did 100 or something the next year. I did more than that the third year, which was a, and I had no team at the time. Wow. And I did, wow. yeah, I was doing it all by myself. And people were like, how are you doing that? What's going on? So then I became the guy that people would come to to ask how do you set up a team? How do you do these deals? And I was, I was all, I was a new agent one day and the next day I'm being asked in the sales meeting to teach the class on how to do the open house or how to do whatever. Right. So then, so I ended up kind of speaking across the country. So I spoke at all the admin events or the different um, real estate related events across the country in terms of like, how do you produce things or how do you think innovatively or how do you market homes or how do you market yourself? I was one of the first guys that started on social media a little bit. So I started doing that, but then I decided, well, if I could sell lots of houses and I should teach other people, I should have my own brokerage, which was a naive idea at the time because owning a brokerage and, and selling homes are two different things. That's a mortgage but I did. brokerage, I found a partner. right? Well, a real estate brokerage. Oh, like so, your own Windermere. Exactly. And I did. So I opened Windermere. I opened my own Windermere in 2005. Oh, I see. So does that mean you were a yeah. franchisee? Yep. Okay, got it. Yep. Okay. So instead yep. of working under somebody's Windermere branch, you were like, I'm going to be a franchisee and I'll have my own yep. Windermere office. Exactly. With my own team working under me. Yep. Exactly. And I could teach other people to do what I was doing. But, but that was my first real insight to the fact that people don't want to do all the work it takes to be in the top quartile. <laughs> They're perfectly happy with making the 50 grand. Oh, so you, know, you that's, didn't, that's, what you didn't like about running the brokerage is, um, you couldn't, is it because you couldn't find enough people to be on your team who were how you were when you first started? Was that the issue? It, not in that way. I hate, I hate saying it that way. Cause that sounds like there's some sort of ranking of, of goodness or professionalism, but, but it was more of the realization of, the way real estate was in general, the business of the real estate brokerage. And I loved it, by the way. So I opened, I ended up having three Windermere offices and I opened a mortgage company that I bought another mortgage company and merged them together. I bought an independent uh, uh, real estate brokerage. I folded it into my company as a, and I had a business partner, John, which is an amazing business partner of mine. We were partners for, you know, 15 and a half years, um, 16 years actually. So then in 2010, I converted it from Windermere to Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate, and I was able to get the the franchise for all of Oregon and Southwest Washington as Better Homes wow. and Gardens. And then I opened two more offices. So I had, a, you know, I had, I had hundreds of agents. I had mortgage companies. I was doing title company training, um, you know, all over the place. And then I did a succession plan with two of my employees, my business development person, and my general manager. 
we worked out a plan to roll them into becoming the owners eventually. So then I sold the company about three years ago. And you sold it to, to them. them. Yep. And so um, just to back up for a minute with the mortgage issue. So if somebody was going to buy a house from you, is it a conflict of interest to send them to your mortgage company? Or can you do that? No, as long as you disclose it. No, okay, so long, that's it's very common. brilliant, right? Yeah. Because you're, yep. you're, yep. your finger is in all the pies of the transactions. Like, so we why end up would getting, I send them to this brokerage when I could make a couple nickels off that? And and it actually started off, I mean, that was a side benefit, but it started off for me as a, as a, as a frustration. But, so at the time, I think, well, when I first started the mortgage company, when I first started, I think I only had like 30 agents or something like that. But by the time, you know, kind of grew it, you know, we had over 100 agents or whatever. So we started doing a lot of deals. And and I started realizing that one of the biggest reasons why the transactions would fall apart is because they end up hooking up with a crappy mortgage broker. Yes. So at the time, I was like, well, I was more interested in controlling the service level than I was in actually the profit of it. And I was I was in, I was interested in controlling the experience of our customer and, and get them to a good mortgage broker that wasn't making false promises, that, that knew what they were doing, plus the product was good, but just the experience and the communication between the brokers, the mortgage and the real estate brokers, what I was really trying to have influence over. And then it just happened to be that, yes, you can make money at it too, but it was, it was, come, it was more to protect the experience of the customer. I knew if I could do that a good job there, then of course the money would follow. So, How did you learn the mortgage business? So you don't, well, by having a good partner, I, I believe in, in expertise in a field and I believe in relying on, on experts. I don't believe in putting all of your chance of success in somebody else's lap. And I think that you need to know the basics and you need to know obviously the fundamentals of business, but I, I believe in, in believing in other people and, and trusting other people. And I believe in, you bringing all of what you're supposed to to the table and having somebody else there that also does the same thing with their area. So I had a good, I had two good partners, you know, for and sure. How did you find them? Was it like you had a good experience with them and you were like, these are the kind of guys I want. These are the kinds of guys I want to interface with all the time. All we need to do is a couple tweaks. And then I think I could go into business with them and we could have our own mortgage company and my clients, I could sell them a house and then they pop on over here. And have a great experience exactly, all the way through. That's exactly how I started in the, in the, in the mortgage space um, was, was that exact thing. That it was really, I knew that these were guys were quality human beings. I had worked with them as an agent before. I knew they knew what they were doing. And so, yeah, that's how it was there. With the real estate, with John, with my real estate brokerage, he actually was one of the owners of the Windermere that I started off at. And we just kind of became friends. And so I came to him when I was thinking about leaving, I was like, Hey man, I'm thinking about leaving. So I understand that this isn't a good conversation because you know, brokerages hate to leave high profile agents or profitable agents. I was like, but can you as a friend, just give me some advice. I have this, I have this idea that I want to run by you in terms of what I think would be a much better format for real estate brokerage. I was like, can we go get a beer? He's like, absolutely. So we got a beer and he's like, okay, this is odd timing because a, that sounds like a great idea. And B I'm considering maybe selling my ownership here. Do you want to join as partners? I was like, this is amazing because you have oh, wow. experience as an owner. I've got a lot of experience as an agent. So we, it really was a great, he's a good man. So we had a great, in the 16 years we were partners, we never had one argument. So did you wrap yeah. up the mortgage business with the real estate um, home 
with the Windermere bit, it turned into Better Homes no, Gardens. Did you wrap separate. that up together and no. sell it, or you sold them separately? I sold them separately. I sold the I sold the mortgage broker brokers way first, but kept uh, a what's called a joint marketing agreement, and it's, it's it's a way to get revenue from a mortgage company without having to own it, and it's and so it's legal. Still and, and you have, and then so all of that I sold. I sold all of that. So I sold oh, all of that okay. about three three and a half years ago. So I own I own nothing. I do, um, I hang my license as a principal broker um, there. And so I still sell some houses from time to time. I have some good clients um, and I invest in real estate. And at the time too, yeah, I mean, I also had a home building company. I had a land development company. Um, I've, you know, either built or flipped hundreds of homes. I've developed hundreds of lots, residential lots. I've owned commercial real estate as well. So I started a commercial real estate division, um, all sorts of things. And then, um, okay, so you're still selling houses, and you're selling houses under what? What is your company name? Better Homes and Gardens. I still, I still, oh, I, I hang my license. Okay, so you did not sell the Better Homes and Gardens company that you created. You didn't. Um, I guess you just to became my employees another took franchisee. It over. You became another franchisee. Yep, two of my employees took over the business. Two of my employees took over the business. So now are you it's a separate Better Homes and Gardens franchisee or nope. is are you still nope. in that business? The you two employees are taking it over and then sometimes you sell houses through them every once in a while. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And then how do yep. you decide um, whether you're gonna put that hat on? Like when do you go, yeah, I'll sell your house. Like what how do you Because um, you got a lot of irons in the fire. So when do you when do you agree to sell somebody's house for them? Is it, is it like a buddy or a friend or is it sort of like yeah, word of mouth is that they're, they're looking for, I mean, how do people find you? Well, at the time when I was really selling houses, I literally did zero outward marketing. It was all network. It was like all word of mouth. It was, it was amazing. Just such great interactions with my customers that, you know, our phone was ringing pretty often. So, I would be at these forums and I'd be sitting with real estate agents that were doing similar in production as me, but they were spending 15, 20, $30,000 a month in marketing. And I had spent like $2,000 all year sort of thing. So I was the difference in our, in what I was netting in revenue versus what they were netting was wild, you know, by hundreds of thousands of dollars, just because I didn't, I wasn't wasting my money on those. I knew what I spent my money on was gifts was, was experiences with them. I would, I would hang out with them. I'd give them my time. I would, I would know the kind of wine that they wanted to drink. I wouldn't just give them a freaking magazine as a clothing gift. Like I spent money on making them feel special for, for a while I was offering, I would hold the, you know, the, the housewarming parties for them. I knew people, if they moved in their house, they'd love to have a housewarming party. So then I became a guest of the housewarming party and I would buy the barbecue and serve the food or whatever at their housewarming party. And guess what? I met all of their friends and all the neighbors of the new neighborhood and I sold three or four houses from these houses. Okay, this parties. is amazing. So you would sell a house to somebody, and then the mm -hmm. not your client, not the seller, not, the buyer would have an open house, and you would come to the buyer's open house, and you would bring them a gift. Sometimes, yeah, absolutely. And so, absolutely. of course, when they're ready to sell the house, they're going to call you. Of course. That's brilliant. Of course. Because every, nobody owns a client, you know what I mean? Like we all have the desire and the ability to, like for instance, if, if I have my CPA, but if, if I meet another better CPA, I'm not married to CPA. Yes, I'm a loyal guy, but I know that you can earn the business. You don't have to steal business. That's what I mean with the boxing. The difference was I was having to steal business. With this, I was just earning it. If you so just smart. outperform somebody, then, then there you go. 
So, and then how I did you get in, involved in land development? Because that's so, it sounds specialized to me. I mean, you're such a high level thinker. I probably didn't seem like much to you, but what did you, I mean, I know you like to, I love experts too. Um, did, did you just decide, did you meet some of these people through your brokerage business and then just kind of decide, hey, I'm kind of interested in that. Tell me how it works. Yeah, for instance, so, you know, I had some really great friends that were business, it was either builders or developers. So I, I might run into a project and let's say if they didn't have the capability to do it or they didn't have the interest to do it or the finances to do it. And if I thought it was a good project, I might say, hey, then I'll do it and help me through it. Or do you want to partner on it? You know, and I'll take some of the bandwidth off or something. So I end up just becoming fascinated with creating value in things. So I loved seeing an old house or for instance, I did a project on uh, Northwest 23rd and Pettigrove, right across from the Matador there. Um, there was an apartment building there as a 14 or 15 unit apartment building. And I was like, this would be a great condominium project. I can see value of, of how I could redo these floor plans. So I, I, again, it's that expression of creativity. I, I loved creating something that was ugly or from nothing and making something cool out of it. Um, so that's why I got interested in it. It wasn't, it was because I was like, man, I can make a beautiful subdivision here. Or in my head, I was like, God, if somebody else does this, they're going to fuck this up. And it's going to be ugly, you know, and I really want to bring some creativity to it. So I love, like, for instance, when I build houses, I would, des- I do all the design from the interior design, the exterior design, the floor like plan design, a lot of programs times. programs and everything? No, I would sit there. I'd draw it. I'd start really? off here with a piece of paper and then I'd take it to my engineer and then he'd make it be a real house, you wow. know? And you hooked um, up with all these building specialists through your brokerage business like you'd meet like along the way like through like your clients would do remodels or whatever and and then you'd meet these people and you liked them and you trusted them and so you'd use them to to do these developments or remodels yeah and when i was when i was visible doing this quite a bit um it was easy because i had a good reputation i did work hard i was a man of my word i you know i did produce good results for both my buyers and sellers i did have a good reputation for being knowledgeable and a good negotiator and things like that. So I, I, I was very fortunate that I met good people and I was, I was quick to understand who also wasn't of the, of the right character that I wanted to deal with. I wasn't just in it for the money. I really was interested in so many other things. And so, but that isn't common. And there's a lot of people that aren't, I'm not really proud of that were in the business, especially at the time. So I just didn't, I just didn't mess with them. I didn't care. I didn't, I didn't need to go be part of the good old boys club. I didn't need to be in the popular club. I didn't, I didn't care about that stuff. So I didn't need to be there. And because you still had your license, would you sell these houses that you would refurbish or build? Yeah, of course. Yeah. For instance, or even in the agent community, even in the agent community though, uh, there would be agents at other companies. And even though I was an owner of another company, they'd bring me deals because they knew I'd close when I said I would, they knew I had the funding or they knew that if I said I was going to close on the third, I'd close on the third. I wasn't going to mess anybody around. Or if I gave a value to their their old lady seller that it was a fixer, they knew I wasn't going to pose her. They knew I was going to give a fair price. So I had agents at other companies that worked at other companies would bring me deals even. And, and I still have a great relationship with them. So it was really, it was really awesome. It's a, it's not karma. It's not, it's, it's just, it's just cause and effect. It's, it's, it's just fucking cause and effect. You know what I mean? It's really that simple when, when you make somebody feel good and listened to and heard and appreciated and they trust you, then of course they're going to think of you next time. It's, it's But it's got to be genuine. You know, you really do have so to think smart. those things. So, so are you still, um, 
are you still doing this? Are you still doing the development work and the that kind of stuff? Well, I took a little bit of a break because I felt like at the time I was kind of like a little bit disenfranchised. I was like, okay, I've done, I've done the building thing. I've done the real estate brokerage thing. I've done the mortgage brokerage thing. I've sold a lot of houses. I've spoke on these stages. I kind of felt like, man, can I, can I take these skills and do something else? Can I, is there something else? I, I felt like I needed to grow a little bit. I felt like I could do a little bit more or something different a little bit. So when I sold the, so the brokerage, I was like, okay, now let me try my hand at startups. Let me try my hand at a restaurant. Let me, I'm making a documentary right now, right? So I took the challenge on of making a documentary. I'm writing a book. I wrote a song. You know, I, I really wanted to try some new things and see if, I, you know, luck is one thing, but I wanted to also see if I, if I was really um, capable of taking the skills and putting them into another business. So, or other different types of businesses. Tell me about the startups. Well, a couple of them. So I started a restaurant. Um, what was that? You know, I, uh, actually, this hat I'm working on. So I'm closing it now because I'm disenfranchised with Portland. So I'm closing it down. But it was called Jewel Crafted Nutrition. My, so what, to wrap the story with my dad, my, uh-huh. my, my biological dad, I, I re-looked him back up. That's how I found him, you know, 27 years later. So then we, you know, made a little bit of a connection here and there, we went camping one time. He, he met my family, he met my children. Uh, I come to find out I had two half brothers. He got remarried and had two sons. So I went and oh, wow. I went and met them one time. So we saw each other four or five times, but then unexpectedly, a few years ago, he passed away of type two diabetes. Oh, I'm sorry. It, yeah, so I, I was a little bummed out by that, but to just put that really mildly uh, yeah. to keep myself calm right now. Yeah. Um, I wanted to do a project that would help people with metabolic disease or with health and fitness. So I thought of a restaurant idea, a nutrition idea. So I, I opened that. I'm sorry. Um, tell me what it's called, what it was called. Jewel, J O U L E. And where is, where was it? On 46. And actually what I'm doing right after this, actually meeting a guy that's going to probably take over the space and buy my equipment. I'm going to see if he's texting me here. Uh, yeah, we're going to go meet after oh, wow. this. Oh, that's great. Uh, so yeah, so we're gonna be at the, so south. Um, it was on forty six in the Sandy. river, southwest or northeast, 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 northeast forty six. Yeah, Hollywood district. Wow, that's great. That's amazing. And so, so you did the restaurant. And what other startups did you do? Any others? Yeah, so that some. So I consult for. I'm actually doing consulting work for a. It's a dating social media company. Oh really? Um, Which one? Are you comfortable saying? It's called. It's called Dusty, and they're going to launch in. Desti, D-E-S-T-I, which is like destiny or oh, destination. Oh, I got it. Sure. Okay. So it hasn't launched yet, but it will. It's launching now. So the app's being built right now. And the plan is to launch in Austin, Texas, Nashville, Seattle, New York. Or the three and what's your role? Like through. what advice are you providing them? So I do consultant work for the business side, the social media side, a little bit of funding as well. So I'll get, I'll get shares of ownership for doing consulting work. And then, of course, for being the seed funder as well. But the reason why I want to do that is because I am patriotic in this com- in this country, and I do believe that relationships we're not really good at having relationships in this country, and so okay. I wanted to do a business that was founded around that. And I hate the dating apps that are out there now; they're superficial. These swipe left, swipe right. Right. So what what I wanted to do was come up with a company where we would get people offline, and you know, like from the online world and the offline. So. This is a this is a company that manages experiences like people doing things together, um, 
So instead of like, hey, you're hot or you're not, you want to hook up, it's like, hey, I want to go skiing. Who wants to go with me? I got two tickets to the Blazer game. I'd like to get a drink at this coffee shop I've never tried before. I want to do this this rafting trip. So it's like offering up that I want to do these things. Who wants to do this with me? That's and cool. then you get a pick. Yeah. Where did you come you know, up with it's that? like a, Well, talking with people that were also interested in the idea of of relationship building and and how gross Tinder is or Bumble or Hinge is. And I've never been on these apps, but I do know people that have. And they're successful, but there's also they're also wildly toxic when people are just judging each other by their face. So uh, we're matching this. So I want this environment to be not just for hooking up, but also like once you are a couple or once you get married, a place you'd actually go to to find places to go on dates with. So these businesses will have like ratings, Dusty ratings, so we'll know how great it is to go on a date there. They might offer specials for couples to come and, and join on a date. Um, and I want it to be like you can integration with open table and Lyft and Uber so I can order you a car. We can meet there. I can make a reservation there. So I want it to be an environment awesome. of like, yeah. So you're hearing it kind of first, honestly. Wow. It sounds so exciting. And then what, what else, what other startup irons do you have in the fire? Uh, I'm invested in Reperio health, which is going to be a huge, it'll, I hope to be the largest sale and exit out of How Oregon spell that? ever. R E P E R I O. Reperio health. Okay. Tell us about that. Uh, this is a good buddy of mine, a real good buddy of mine who started a company called Sightbox in Portland, Oregon. He had a good exit. He sold that company to Johnson and Johnson. I was one of the wow. original seed funders in that. And, and after he sold that, we were having a bunch of whiskey and sitting in a hot tub. And he was like, well, I got one more in me. What can we do? And I was like, I don't know, the bigger problem you solve, the more money you can make. And the more people you help, the bigger the exit will be. And he's like, health, healthcare. I was like, that's it. So we started thinking about things and this is all him. I was just there as a sounding board. I mean, this, this guy's working his butt off. He's a good, I, this is one of my favorite people on the planet. His name is Travis. I love this man to death and his wife, both his whole family, but um, it's called Reperio Health. So what he's doing is essentially taking an entire, um, it would be a normal like checkup that you go to your doctor for like an annual checkup sort of thing and putting it in a subscription. So it shows up at your door and you do it yourself. So, on your doorstep will arrive this like home checkup kit of all of, so from cholesterol to glucose, to blood pressure, to your height, your weight, there'll be a, there'll be a, an eye test. Like it's the nine basic things that you go into the doctor to do. And then this will be good, not just for the individual, but for companies to, to manage like huge companies. They got five, 10,000 employers that they're trying to like predetermine who has diabetes. He doesn't, it'll wildly save on the healthcare costs and also places like, Target and Walgreens and CVS in their in their places like people can come into them and do these little checkups now instead of having to go to make a doctor appointment that's very expensive. So it's it's going to revolutionize how people like control. And by the way, all of your health metrics are on your phone on your app. So that's amazing. These, so you can really keep track. Yeah, yeah. It's it's this is going to be a really good deal, I think. So I'm invested in this on two different two different rounds, and and um, yeah. I think it'll be a good one. A, a company called House Happy here, a company called Connect here. Those are all ones I'm invested in now. What's House Happy? House Happy is a home services um, company. So uh, it's like a it's a online journal of everything for your house. So, for instance, people don't know what all the colors are in the rooms or the health, the furnace filter size, the model right. numbers of all the ranges. So somebody comes in and does a full inventory. Everything like how many linear feet of 
gutters do you have? How many windows do you have? How many square footage of roofs? Please do light bulbs. (laughs) All of it. And it's all there plus integrated services. So now that you have all this information, you have your own home journal, I can actually track all my home maintenance. And when I sell my house, I give this to my buyer. They know everything about the house. They know maintenance. And then anytime something goes wrong, you would just pull it up on your phone, right? So you're talking to Jenny on the phone. What's the model number? What's the serial number? Uh, I don't know. I don't know where to find it. Oh, here it is. Here's my app. Or, or you need your gutters clean. You go, I have 170 linear feet of gutters. Exactly. You know, some three stories or all that stuff. It's all, it's called house happy. Well, when is that one? I I need to know about this. When is that launching? It's launched. That's launched. That's been that's been that's been working. He's he's found the CEO. His name's Dave Minugian. He was a former CEO of Golf Channel, and he's he's a CEO here. And yeah, he's he's doing. How he's do we doing get great. a hold it's, of it's, that? It's, How do we if we if we want to buy this or is it an app that yeah, we can download now? Yep, just go to househappy.com. Oh, that's so yeah. great. Okay, what yeah. was the other one? Is there is there another one you want to plug? There's another one, right? Uh, connect, but that's that's for diabetic that's for that's a diabetes coaching services that's for big employers uh, so oh, that's connect, great. let's see connect that was again that was kind of because of my dad um right anyway so those are those are those are the ones and I'm then is on. connect up and running now like if i'm a company and i want to start using it is that something that i can yeah. do today yeah k-a-n-n-a-c-t connect and is it is it a app that the company would download or no, it's a, it's a, it's a whole coaching service. So it's, a, you can go online, but what happens is, is the people who are diabetics, you know, they might do all these tests, but they're not really plugged in. This is actually like a, an accountability coaching program plus subscription for all the scripts and everything you need as a diabetic, but it, it wires in the, the, the whole team of the, of the patient. So if you, if you take a test and it's kind of off, your doctor will get a notification. Your family might get a notification. It'll send you like, here's what you do right now. It, it, so it's, it's more of like a life situation to deal with people, a lot of people with diabetes. So. That's fabulous. And then tell me about your documentary. That was because of the riots that were in Portland. <laughs> yeah, and I saw your TikTok um, on that. And that's part of how you ended up on my radar is everybody was sending me, you know, I have this Portland-centric podcast. Everybody was sending me um, the TikToks that you had done that were based on the riots or had to do with the riots and saying, you have got to interview this guy. So tell me, I mean, how did you, so did it, did the documentary come out of the TikToks or did you do the TikToks based on the, did you decide to do a documentary first and then you put together the TikToks from your documentary footage? Yeah, I just started on TikTok like a little less than a year ago. I just did that just with my daughter, just sort of thing. So the TikToks were just supposed to be for fun. And now I'm, I'm using them to communicate some different things now because uh, there's a little bit of a platform there that I feel like um, it's kind of your duty to, to make sure that what you stand for, you're standing for it all the time. And my TikToks aren't political or anything like that. I have a very you know open views about the way I believe, but that's just how I believe. It doesn't mean I'm evangelicalizing that. Oh no! It's everything. It's it's. I'm fixing yeah. a sink. It's it's. Uh, totally. My daughter's getting ready for a, it's family. My totally. daughter's getting ready for a dance. It's hey, I was just thinking about how relationships work, and in my view, yeah. this is important. It's um yeah. how to succeed in life. I mean, it's really kind of everything. The whole package. I didn't. I didn't want to. I didn't want to commoditize one view of myself on a social media platform anymore. You know, I don't. I don't. I think that externalizing your value 
and then trying to decide what other people want from you and then commoditizing that is a very toxic existence. It's not very soul fulfilling. It's just not what I want to do right now. I don't judge anybody else for doing that. I just, it's not something I'm interested in doing right now. Well, it's also not authentic, right? Because then you're just giving the audience what they want to hear and you're creating this echo chamber that may, that is probably at some point not going to be authentic to what, who you are or what you really think. And it's destabilizing for you mentally and psychologically. And then you're just playing what your constituents or your audience wants to hear. You're not really creating authentic content. So the way I kind of exist now, I understand what social media is and isn't. And I know that we are the product of social media and social media isn't the product, right? So if you're on social media, you are the product. And I just think it's toxic when you start to becoming a product and you commoditize yourself, it becomes very soulless and, and it's a search for significance. And I just don't want to pay my bills that way. I fortunately enough though, that I'm making a good living some money off of TikTok just because people are saying, Hey, can you help me coach with this? Can you help me? I want to hire you for this sort of thing, you know, or you bring some value to me. Thank you. Even that's just amazing. That's so, amazing. um, yeah, I am making a few bucks on TikTok, but that's just as a result of, you know, value. That's not, I'm not selling anything per se. So, but the documentary happened because of the riots. And so the documentary is called revelations and tear gas. Okay. I, I actually would like to do this a little bit of justice. Um, this is why I asked you if you have time, because this is, this piece has been, besides having kids and getting married and, you know, the Tony Robbins stuff, this documentary, this project has been the single most transformative thing in my life. Wow. For sure. So the version of me that you're seeing right now is completely different than the version of me two years ago when I started this project. Um, like by leaps and bounds, even it's an exponential change of how I see the world, how I see myself, how I view parenting as a result of this project. So I, I just want to explain it and give it enough. Please. I've never really sat down and really talked about it in this way, but I, you sound, you're so easy to talk to. So um, thank you. Oh, good. Well, thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad um, that we connect so well and that we can really deeply delve into this stuff. And it's not just like a half hour blip about pretty heavy, to- some pretty heavy topics. Okay, guys, that was it for part one of our interview with Eric Post here on Rational in Portland. You can find Eric at All American Dad 111 on TikTok. Stay tuned for part two of our interview with Eric Post here in Rational in Portland.